Okay, good evening, everyone. Welcome to what is the final uh, IFG Fringe event of this Conservative Party conference. Thank you all for joining us, despite the difficulties that you are all doubtless going to experience in terms of getting home. Um, if you are, do not live in Man Manchester, we appreciate your presence here this evening. Um, and we are very much looking forward to discussing uh, our topic for this evening, which is how the centre of government can deliver the Prime Minister's priorities. Um, my name's Hannah White, I'm Director of the Institute for Government, um, and I'm delighted to be joined by an excellent panel uh, for this discussion this evening. Uh, working from left to right, we have uh, Ben Warner, uh, who is a former Chief Advisor on Digital and Data to the Prime Minister, um, and now has his own startup. Um, of course, by the Right Honourable Jeremy Quinn MP, who is Paymaster General and Minister for the Cabinet Office. Um, and so has the most direct current experience of how the centre of government is working. Um, then to my right, Anita Boating, who is a former special advisor and now partner at Portland Communications, uh, special advisor, I should say, in the cabinet office. So again, very direct experience of uh, central government. And on the far, my far right, Alex Thomas, who's a programme director at the Institute for Government and leads our work on the civil service and policy making. So fantastic panel. So what are we here to talk about today? Um, I think it's fair to say that in recent years there have been quite a few challenges facing government. Um, that's not, not controversial. Um, and the uh, experience over the recent years of having to deal, the whole of government having to deal first with, with Brexit, uh, which was a massive challenge uh, in terms of just the organisation uh, of, of what had to happen to give effect to the decision of the British people. Um, and then uh, hot on its heels, the Covid pandemic. Um, has really demonstrated both the strengths but also some of the weaknesses of our government system and we include in that the centre of government. When we talk about centre of government um, and at the Institute we've been running a, uh, we, are, we are in the middle of running a year-long commission on the centre of government and by our definition of that is to talk about number 10, the Cabinet Office and the Treasury. Um, and uh, so we have been thinking a lot about uh, in the context of that commission, and I should say Ben is one of our commissioners, about this question of, of how the centre of government works, what it does well, what it could do better, uh, because we think as in the run-up to uh, an election, uh, which has to have to have happened in the next year or so, this is a really good moment for um, all parties to reflect uh, on this question of how the centre works. We have a, a whole system of government, which uh, some of which was set up uh, a century or more ago, um, some of which has evolved much more recently. Um, but I think it's always important to, to reflect on how we do things and, and whether and how we can do them better. And so that's what we're doing with our Centre Commission. We're going to be coming up with uh, recommendations of how we think things could be done differently and better. And we're going to be hoping to persuade everybody that, the, that those recommendations are things which should be implemented uh, after the next general election. So that's why we're interested in this topic. And I think um, everybody should be interested in this topic. Um, so I'm going to kick off with some questions to the panel. Um, we'll have a bit of a discussion on the panel and then we'll open up to questions from the floor. So do please uh, be thinking of those if you would like to ask questions to the panel. So I'm going to kick off with you, Jeremy, if that's all right, as you might anticipate. Um, and just to ask you what you think uh, from your experience of working at the centre, um, what its strengths and weaknesses are. Okay. And, and Thank you, Anna. It's lovely to be here. And well done, all of you, for braving three days of fringe events and still being here. Your hardy people here to the, here to the very end um, for these panel events. And well done. Look, I, I, um, 
I could speak for an hour, but I won't, on a strengths and weaknesses at the centre. In the Cabinet Office, as we've just been discussing, it's got two very distinct, very different roles. Uh, so you get held in uh, to crises, emergencies, and um, things which are neither of those, uh, but are where you need to bring departments together uh, for, for uh, in, in common cause. And I think that element, which has always been there at the centre of government, has improved enormously post the learnings of COVID. Uh, so it's something which will rarely be talked about because by definition, it's not what we sort of dwell on in government. But the establishment of the National Situation Centre, the uh, resourcing of COBRA um, does ensure that we're getting the right data to make the right decisions in a timely way. Uh, so in my experience, so it's not something that anyone's ever able to analyse, uh, but uh, when we have moments uh, that can be uh, things like of Majesty the Queen, a coronation at one end of the spectrum, industrial action at the other end of the spectrum, and a whole load of stuff, uh, classified and unclassified, where you just need to bring people together. That works very well. And part of the COVID lesson learning, I think, has been people are less prissy about, well, it has to be ministers talking at a ministerial meeting. If I'm chairing a meeting and the right person's got the right information, happens to be a senior official, I'd rather they said it, rather than we wait for a second meeting with officials to take place for the minister to correct what I say. I mean, we are, that aspect, I think, works really well. But that's not really what you're driving at. I appreciate that. It is far broader. Uh, making certain that the centre, the body of number 10, the Cabinet Office and the Treasury uh, work effectively together. And that goes through a number of a number of layers. Are we as efficient and as productive as we can be and should be? Uh, no, of course we're not. Uh, are we better than we would have been if we stayed on the same trajectory as we were on in 2010? Of course, massively so, to the tune of tens of billions. But is the more we can do from the centre to drive more effective uh, government from the point of view of productivity and efficiency, certainly. Is the centre, you know, we have a system, which I'm very comfortable with, of devolving decision, -maker, decision making to departments, and yet, as Ben and Anita and all of us know, the, the, the centre keeping an eye on what's going on, uh, that is massively enhanced by data. And have we yet got to a point where the centre uh, has free flow of data really understands what, what's gone. I'm certain we can be a lot better than that. Uh, but that requires departments themselves to gather the data. People are very excited about AI. I'm very excited about AI. I think it's going to be transformative for the economy and particularly transformative for the public sector. But as we all know, for AI to be effective, you need to have the data initially. So basic things like um, making certain that one login works, we've got over a million people accessing it, or making certain that uh, we have the top 75 uh, actually operating at a great standard, uh, the top 75 means of the public communicating with the government. That is absolutely critical to get the data that we can use uh, effectively to understand right at the heart of government what's going on in each of the individual departments so they be able to do their jobs. So it's the more we can do, certainly. A lot is right, but you can actually see the foundations of how we can make it a lot better. And what do you think, I mean, if you could wave a magic wand over the centre, um, and do one thing to make it really much more effective than you see it being in terms of translating the political will of the government into actual outcomes, what would it be? Um, it's coming down to effectiveness of delivery. So there is, there are people at the centre, and I've been uh, albeit briefly, not a proper one, that's on common, but I've been a, a, a civil servant. I know that people enter public service because they want to deliver on the will of the uh, government and they want to be effective in ensuring that what the government is trying to do uh, 
for the uh, uh, for the good of the UK is translated. Um, and there are some brilliant policy officials. What there isn't always is a similar degree of brilliance in actually operationalizing those decisions. So getting people in with external experience is critical. As you know, we've been doing external by default, but that wasn't working to the effect that it could have done. And that's why my speech earlier in the summer, I was setting out really basic stuff in terms of recruitment, like getting the vetting done faster, getting people through the door faster, actually having adverts that people can understand. We want you to be a grade seven, into, you know, I, I, won't, I can't conjure up the language now, but the language which no one could possibly understand what the job is they're being invited to do. Uh, so getting external people in, I think having the Places for Growth programme is a real success, and it's bringing fresh thinking from outside of one or two postcodes in the centre of London. Um, and attracting people in uh, to the service who will actually say, if I make a success of delivery, I will actually be rewarded and praised for that. And it's a really difficult thing to get over. Because as someone said in an earlier fringe meeting earlier this week, um, everyone wants to be, we talked about it earlier, everyone wants to be Sir Jeremy Hayward, they don't want to be John Manzoni. And yet, there has to be a role for people to say, what you really want is people who can really deliver. So that's the... That's the magic wand, but changing the culture, praising people for what they do, making certain we're getting new people in, that is a way of helping it. Great. Alex, can I turn to you now? As I said, we are doing this commission on the central government. One of the things that we have heard, and we've been sort of taking evidence from people from a wide variety of uh, different sectors, people who've worked in the centre at different times, people who have worked with the sector, with, with the centre, uh, the private sector, um, local government, lots of other places, one of the things we sort of hear consistently is a sense that the centre finds it difficult to set a strategy and stick to it. That there is, there's something, um, uh, I think you just said, Jeremy, about the, the cabinet, cabinet office feeling like a place where you have to sort of deal with the crises when they when they come along. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's that writ large with things like COVID, for example, or um, sort of major issues, but also on a day-to-day -day basis. So can you just tell us a bit Alex, about where, what we've started to think about why it is that the census finds it difficult to do this. Yeah, thanks, um, uh, thanks, Hannah, and um, you know, I agree with a lot of what's already been said. But to uh, sort of take a, a bit of a step back and think, as you said, about the work that we've been doing this um, centre commission, uh, uh, and um, you know, as part of that, it is worth saying there are some you know really high performing bits of the center no one is going to argue there aren't brilliant civil servants in number 10 in particular some people argue uh, i think with some justification the treasury is in some ways too effective um uh, in uh, terms of asserting its um its power and influence cabinet office i think it's probably more of a mixed bag uh, although jeremy's uh, jeremy's efforts are um will not go unrewarded um uh, but as i say to take a to take a slight um step back it does seem to us in this work in the um, Centre Commission that there's this big gap around strategy and then the execution of strategy and one of the things that makes the centre of British government those three um, uh, institutions of the Cabinet Office number 10 and the Treasury uh, sometimes um, less than the sum of their parts is that um, uh, Prime Ministers are not um, always uh, able to um, identify a strategy, translate it into a programme for government, and then crucially align budgets with that um, strategy. Um, this has come out loud and clear from uh, a lot of the uh, evidence that we've uh, taken. I recognise it from uh, some of my own experience working in the Cabinet Office um, uh, in, in particular. And uh, there is uh, something about um, 
how if number 10 and the machinery around the Prime Minister are not strong enough to set that strategy and translate it into a programme, the Treasury will do it by default through a spending review. That might be fine, but that might not be the strategy that the government wants to prosecute. So I think there's a really interesting question, and we are playing around with ideas on this at the Centre Commission. Welcome all submissions and thoughts from everyone in this in this room um, uh, about how you uh, uh, help to address that um, uh, uh, that 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 point. Various ideas. Um, the importance of a programme for government at the start of a government seems uh, critical for me, where, where the government, the Cabinet Office, signs off um, a coherent programme that translates the government's manifesto, which, you know, love it or loathe it, is, is not designed to be a programme for government, but translates the, the political manifesto, which ultimately is designed to get a government elected, into something that grapples with the priorities and the trade-offs that government uh, inevitably uh, uh, demands. Cabinet sign off around that. And then um, a process around the Prime Minister and the Chancellor that, that means you know, meaningful alignment, potentially sort of from the bottom up, of budgets to, to government um, uh, priorities. Um, again, different people have different views on this. I won't go into too much detail, but um, I'm personally quite sympathetic to building up the uh, economic team around the Prime Minister. So there's, I'm not a split the Treasury person, uh, although I think there's some interesting arguments about, uh, about that and forthcoming IFG work that will go into it in, in more detail. But I do think it's important um, uh, that the um, uh, that the Prime Minister has uh, economic su support and if not a quality of arms, then at least the ability to have a meaningful debate and discussion with the Chancellor that doesn't always happen in the way at the moment. Um, Jeremy mentioned uh, wanting to be Jeremy Hayward rather than um, uh, John Manzoni. I was Jeremy Hayward's PPS for uh, a couple of years. And one of the things that I saw Jeremy give Prime Ministers was some of that equality of arms with, um, with the Chancellor so that you could really hash out the priorities of um, of the government. I also think there's something about a Prime Minister, the job of a Prime Minister is undoable and will always be undoable, um, uh, but I don't think the current system as set up relieves the Prime Minister to do the things only the Prime Minister can do, which is set the strategy, which is um, you know meet toe-to-toe -to -toe with um, foreign leaders. I think the Prime Minister is drawn into the day-to-day, -day. so another of the ideas that we're we're playing around with is how can you elevate a minister? I mean, there's a um, deputy prime minister at the moment um, in Oliver Dowden in the cabinet office who does a lot of the brokering. Um, are there ways in which you can elevate that role to you know perform more of a more of a trio with the chancellor and the um, uh, and, uh, and and the prime minister to um, to free up the prime minister from uh, some of the day-to-day -day demands of the job um, to focus on those things that only a, a prime minister can do. Final quick point is um, I am in favour broadly of a more powerful centre. But more more powerful doesn't mean bigger, and it doesn't mean doing more. Um, there's a, a sort of aphorism that I tried to coin in a previous report that uh, uh, I wrote about um, the UK is a highly centralised state with a really weak centre, so we've got the worst of all worlds. So I'd like to see um, personally a less centralised state, but with a stronger centre. And actually, I think a stronger centre um, uh, through some of the ideas that we've been kicking around um, could be an enabler of a um, more decentralised state. Thank you, Alex. I'll give panel uh, an opportunity to respond to all that later but um, Ben I just wanted to ask you and having um, talked to you a lot in the context of the Commission I know you have a particular interest in this question about people who populate the centre uh, of government and their quality and diversity and we've talked about this a lot and I think there's a sense that you know there are some brilliant people at the centre but the, but the government can sometimes struggle to recruit and retain the best people um, 
And so could you say a, w a word about uh, what you think you've learned in the context of the question about that or indeed from your past experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, as everyone said, the, the number 10 officials I worked with are absolutely brilliant. These are, these are absolutely cracking policy officials. They're very entrepreneurial. They understand how it all works. I didn't basically do anything if there wasn't one of these people working alongside me because I'd have just failed. Um, but I think one of the things that's interesting is that they are quite similar, right? These are very, very good policy officials. When it comes to, when I joined number 10, when it came to data, when it came to science, when it came to technology, when it came to science policy, when it came to being an entrepreneur, business, I was often the only person with that level of experience in number 10. And I think that's a real problem when it comes to um, being able to communicate with different communities, different groups, for instance, like one of the reasons in, in COVID, I think we had problems is because of that high bandwidth communication between scientists and uh, the center. Like they could use and talk to me about words that they used, uh, they, you know, they understood that I understood what they meant when they talk about nonlinear effects, things like this, just sort of like, and I think that that ability to, to, to speak freely and be able to convey information is really important to the center so that they can uh, convey the right communication for the, for the crisis and emergencies. And I think that's particularly true around so we we have a, we just have an absence in that in across the civil service in fact i'd say to you one thing that we we really need to get one of the things that's really crucial is that we also need to remember that data is really important but also analysis of that data and the key information of that is really important in the civil service we don't have chief data scientists in any departments it's nuts right the mod says that data is really important ai is really important do you have a chase data scientist no we do have a uh, Laura Gilbert, who's head of analysis in number 10 in data uh, science unit you know, set up. She's brilliant. We should have more people like her in, in, in government uh, pushing forward this agenda so that ministers are getting the best possible information. But I think it's also really important when we think about actually how we use these sort of uh, technologies, we think about the full skill set this is. It's not just somebody who does data. Um, look at, say, for instance, the COVID, in, the ONS infection study is an absolutely brilliant example of the UK doing a gold leading thing in, in, uh, in COVID. And what the ONS did, they had the skills to do something they'd never done before. But because they had people who understand how to collect data, they had people who uh, they had the data on the population to be able to weight it properly. They had people who could do the experimental design. They had people who could do the, the really complex modeling. They had people who could bring that insight back down so that it had impact for when it's put in front of the prime minister. That's exactly the type of strategic thinking we need. That is a really, really multi-disciplined, highly talented team. And so it's really important we can swing that type of organization into place when we need to. It's exactly the same with the vaccine task force. The only reason I use the ONS infection study is because everyone talks about the vaccine task force. That's brilliant. But that's also about bringing the outside expertise. I think it's really important we don't forget that actually we do have these brilliant expertise within the civil service at times. And we need to also swing those people in at the right moments in time to deal with the crisis um, and to help government be more efficient. Thanks very much, Ben. Anita, you had a lot of experience working in the cabinet office. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say that um, of the three bits of the centre um, that we've been discussing in our centre commission, the cabinet office is the one where people sort of ra often raise questions about what sits at the centre, what needs to sit at the mm. centre, what should, and whether it's possible to have a thing which is the cabinet office, which really has a sort of coherent identity and sense of mission in and of itself because of this sense that there's a lot of things that if you look at them, you might say, well, yes, that should sit at the centre, but when you put them all together, it doesn't necessarily feel like a coherent whole. So what would you, um, given your experience, sort of retain or reform or get rid of from the Cabinet Office? 
I think this is a really important question because the cabinet office is the, the sort of theme that runs through a lot of this um, conversation. And I guess I always think about, it's almost like saying a knife and fork isn't very good. And it's like, well, it's not very good for like eating soup. And it's not very good for like digging a tunnel, but if we were, you know, having a roast dinner, it's, it's great. So I think the cabinet office is that tool and you've really got to understand how to use it, when it's useful and when it's not. And I think that Jeremy's absolutely right that in a crisis, the cabinet office, in my view, cannot be matched. Like Carillion, I was there for many others, Brexit preparedness. These are the kinds of things that cabinet office can do very, very well. And I think it's very good at those cross-cutting issues. We had a lot of issues with apprenticeships, for instance, where it can speak to various departments. And I would say to Alex's point, does a good job brokering when there are issues between you know, two or, or more departments. But the issues that cabinet office, I think, can sometimes run into, really at the root of them, they're at number 10. And it's really about number 10 understanding where and how cabinet office can be useful. So when a prime minister is very clear about what they want the cabinet office to do, and it's got to be one, two or one or two things and not 400, when the prime minister gives it time to to do that and to shift gears from the thing they were doing before the reshuffle to afterwards. And I think particularly to Jeremy's point, when the cabinet office has the skill set, the people within it to be able to operationalize, then I think it can be incredibly successful. And just on that third point, I think that when it comes to operational success, I think officials in general are really good at understanding why something is needed or where there's a problem and being able to diagnose that problem. I think when it comes, when the rubber slightly hits the road is when you ask and you try to understand, okay, but how is your solution actually going to be implemented on the ground and deliver an impact? And I think operational thinking is generally something that people in the civil service and I think special advisors really struggle with because they're very good at politics and often in their minds that's policy and that's not about understanding and being able to operationalize what's happening on the ground so i think that understanding that strength of the cabinet office is part of how number 10 can use the cabinet office very well but that doesn't always happen and and the final thing i'd say is that you know it's a, the, the the often cited adage about how number 10 doesn't really have any power i think that there's been an interesting conversation about how or whether if you took and created a kind of office of the PM, you would be able to circumnavigate some of these challenges. I personally think that there are ways in which number 10 is so culturally different to other departments. And number 10 is a place where, honestly, everyone just sort of wants to implement the will of the prime minister. And very often I think that means people in number 10 don't really understand what it's like in departments where you do have slightly more competing priorities. You can have tensions between ministers and officials and, and special advisors. And that doesn't really exist in number 10. And I think there is something about number 10, not just understanding it's I'm number 10 because number 10 says so way of getting things done, but being able to understand the different cultures and dynamics within departments that would make it more effective. And so it's a bit about the formal stuff, but it's also about the way number 10 uses and understands departments. I think, I think that's a really interesting point. And, and one of the things we've heard repeatedly, and I think, including from you, Ben, is, is the sense that in number 10, 
the sort of the political and the and the um, official side is just really very seamless. I mean, it doesn't necessarily feel the same in the polls. Oh, 100%. Jeremy, did you want to come back on that? Just one point going to make. And I, I would really interest, be interested in your your um, response to this critique about, about the strategic centre. Do you feel that, that it is possible that you have the tools sitting at the centre to really maintain that focus on, on strategic priorities? Um, I'll certainly touch on that. Just one thing I'd like to say, because no one said it yet, um, and I think it's worthwhile, particularly following on immediately from Anita, and that is the benefits of evaluation. So, oh. I, I, and and I just maybe everyone mentioned it, but number ten and uh, uh, and Alex referred to people coming with the manifesto. I remember being when I was in the Treasury, so a long time ago. But I remember all this effort being going into, and it wasn't the Treasury; it's another department. And they finally did what they wanted, which was a press release. They got the press release out, and they said, "How are we going to do this?" silence and, it was, <laughs> and it's the and making certain if you actually say from the outset not only are we going to do this policy but we're going to evaluate how it works and we're going to have continuous evaluation and then we're going to pull the plug on it and it doesn't matter if it fails because at least then we know it doesn't work and we do recycle the money do something different and we won't evaluate it five years after it's been implemented when everyone's moved on and is doing a different job and people just quietly shove it into the bottom drawer if it's failed so i think having and we've got the evaluation task force an important innovation and the good news they evaluated you know 100 billion of government expenditure the bad news is that's about eight percent of what they could have done so far so there's a lot more work to be done but it's it's an important task on the strategic center yes um there is a but this does come and without doubt we have it at the moment and i'm delighted that we do you need that you need that absolute certainty of purpose from the center so if you do as i say civil service in my experience if they've got that direction of travel from a minister, it helps if the minister's been around for a bit and they know what they're doing and you've got some continuity there because we always blame civil servants for chopping and changing. But if you've got consistency of purpose for, for the ministerial team, they know what they want to deliver and it then flows through. But the same is true from the centre. So if you're saying, these are my long-term objectives, this is what I want to achieve, this is how we're going to do it, you can then uh, evaluate. And the evaluation comes through, uh, obviously, from a ministerial point of view, but also cabinet secretary, permanent secretary what are your objectives for the year how effective are you at, at uh, achieving them uh, boards that were reconstituted by uh, Francis as we Francis board as we know having boards with external expertise actually holding permanent secretaries to account as well it just gives the minister extra bandwidth to say is my department doing what it should be doing as I said right at the outset having a scattering of people from the outside coming in with a different perspective always helps as well Alex uh, one of the one, just to pick up on that point that Jeremy was making, one of the things we think w might be helpful about having a, a sort of a stronger a statement of, of what it is the government is, is trying to achieve, which builds on the manifesto, is this point about accountability um, and ensuring that actually, you know, um, civil servants, um, but also ministers, uh, can be held to account by the centre really you know, clearly and explicitly for, for the delivery of, of what it is that the centre wants to happen. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it, it, it's um, there's a there's a interesting critique that's you know we're very interested in the Institute for Government about whether anyone actually runs the civil service, uh, and there's a strong argument that um, it is not as currently constituted an institution that is runnable by uh, anyone, and this is what the Francis Maud uh, work that Sam is reporting into uh, Jeremy and the and the cabinet office is is designed to do. Uh, I think there are all sorts of improvements that you could make to that, but I do think. Uh, it would also having having a program for government would enable the cabinet secretary, head of the civil service, to 
have more sensible conversations about um, about resource uh, and then to hold permanent secretaries to account for the capability of their departments in delivering that program. Uh, and I'm not, you know, I'm not naive about the politics of it. I completely agree with Jeremy that it requires you know, consistent and persistent um, uh, uh, political direction um, from, uh, uh, from from politicians. But I, I do think that um, uh, there is an opportunity for uh, the uh, civil service lines of accountability to be strengthened from permanent secretaries and departments um, to uh, the head of the civil service cabinet secretary uh, to be held accountable for, for delivering that program. Uh, that obviously then runs into the uh, kind of baronial um, uh, departmental uh, vertical lines on which our system is constituted. And I think, again, very interesting question for us to grapple with as part of this um, work that we're doing about the accounting officer model uh, and the extent to which, quite rightly, permanent secretaries are held to account um, uh, uh, by Parliament for the spend in their departments of all the responsibilities that, you know, you can criticise uh, lots of things about the civil service being too ambiguous. The accounting officer um, dynamic, I think, is not one of them. Permanent secretaries do feel that quite keenly. It creates a hell of a lot of frustration in the cabinet office when you're trying to get stuff done across government um, uh, in a consistent way when permanent secretaries have the the, the um, horizontal um, uh, ability to, uh, uh, to, to uh, take those decisions with their secretaries of state um, uh, in, uh, in departments. So I think the, the coherence of a programme is, is really important. You know, a declaration of interest. I uh, was in, in in the civil service for the um, duration of the coalition government. Um, uh, that program, whatever you think about the decisions that were made by the coalition government, that program worked pretty well actually. And it uh, and it was really hard for ministers and departments to divert from something in the program because a lot of political capital had been invested in it. Um, uh, but it was um, you know also set a really clear direction. So these things, I'm not talking about 500 page documents or anything could have a fairly tight description of these things. One interesting question that we've been debating inside the Commission is to what extent was the coalition programme for government successful because it had a programme for government and it was politically invested in it? To what extent was it successful and did it stick because it was a coalition? And so both parties had a sort of mutually assured destruction. Uh, and I think it was both, but there's a, you know, it, that's a really nice example for me of how the political can mix with the administrative to create the conditions for success or failure. I think it's a fascinating subject, <laughs> and, 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 and I, I think you're, you're right to focus on Alex. I think, it's, and the, clearly, the dynamic then, and I was in Parliament at the time, the dynamic then of having you know, the quad, and this is what we've all agreed, and therefore we've got to stick to the program. It, it also had a, a, an advantage in some ways that the, the nightmare they were inheriting, we were inheriting in 2010, was such that that focus, particularly on uh, retrenchment and, and being fiscally sound, uh, did absolutely underpin the whole of that uh, parliament and it had to for good reasons but we can have a longer discussion <laughs> and, I, and i look forward to it so we, we've touched on the role of the treasury i just want to um finish by talking to the panel about that before i come to questions from the audience so that's another hint to get your questions ready um so one of the interesting things which is really kind of it's sort of obvious but it's, it's really come for me strongly out of, out of the commission evidence we've taken is how the treasury is this very long established uh, very well-established um, entity sitting, at, you know, really at the centre of UK government, and it has its processes, and it has its orthodoxies. Some might say, um, and we're doing a piece of work on on what those are. But but I'll leave that for now. Whereas number ten is uh, also sits obviously right at the centre, but it prides itself on its flexibility. 
So when a prime minister comes in, there's very much a sort of sense from the civil service of how would you like us to arrange number 10 to, to, to work you know, in the way that you would like to work, prime minister. And prime ministers tend to come in and feel that they need to change things and to put their own mark on, on, on number 10. And so you have this sort of, again, this sense that you, know, you have this big entity in the treasury which sort of swallows up whoever comes in as chancellor and as ministers and says to them, you know, this is how the way, this is the way things work and this is how it's going to be and, and this gives you a real institutional power. And then you have the prime minister coming in who, um, you know, doesn't necessarily see or understand the value of some things which are already at the centre and may get rid of them without realising that or may, um, you know, may wish to add things which, you know, um, which aren't there, which may be very useful. But that sense of flexibility means that there's, an, again, an imbalance between um, people coming into those roles. Um, ben, I'll let you um, reflect on that observation first. I think that the, the sort of the power balance between number 10 and Treasury is fascinating. And I wouldn't like to say that I've got all the answers. What I would say is that um, the number 10 often has more junior officials who often are not necessarily experienced leaders. Um, I never really had any problems with Treasury because I'd go over there and talk to them in person, right? It's, you know, go manage where the problem's happening is a, is a sort of classic phrase from Toyota. Uh, production system. Um, I'd also talk to them about the maths and, you know, treasuries, maths is, uh, you know, it could be approved at times. And so um, I, I, I think that, you know, in, in some ways it, it's, it's, I don't think it's the root of all problems. I think that, I think that it's an, it's, it's one of those ones because it's such a visible problem. It's the problem we all talk about, but actually most of the problems that, um, if we have to say why we maybe the the, the, the Britain hasn't maybe uh, grown as much over the last thirteen years as we want, it's not actually probably due to the sort of power balance. There's always going to be a power imbalance. Um, we can split the treasury, but that will cause different power imbalances. It's people, right? In the end, it comes down to these people, and I think that actually what we need to do is uh, not necessarily worry so much about treasury, but how can we give number ten the capabilities and the the the, 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 the strength for it to be able to be um, to, to, to sort of um, have a have a good open honest in, uh, discussion, and I think that's the thing is actually what when, when we're talking about maybe that's the better way of saying it. When we're talking about the discussions between number of ten and treasury and the conflicts that occur, we are automatically assuming that this is not an open, truthful, honest debate over the best analysis and best data that we can have access to. If that debate happens over the best analysis and best data, I don't think those power, I think that power struggles disappears to a much greater degree. That's really interesting. Um, so what's really fascinating about number 10 and Treasury is they sit sort of side by side, literally, but they couldn't be more difficult, different in, in every single aspect, not just like the cultural thing, I think, Hannah, that you're reflecting, which is that number 10 is very flexible and it's a sort of um, it's malleable and it, it can grow, it can shrink. And sometimes that means it lacks a degree of accountability. Treasury derives a lot of its accountability, partly through like the purse strings, but also through an incredibly rigid structure. And I always found that honestly, if you get a no from one person in number 10, you can get a yes from someone else. If you get a no from Treasury, it's a no. Um, and, and, there are, and it's a much more difficult process to circumnavigate. And that has strengths definitely because there is a degree of 
um, decisiveness to the way that Treasury operates that can bring discipline. And I think that's partly where its power comes from, actually. Not just the purse strings, but an understanding that the Treasury will, and, and they're just people, as Ben says, making decisions, but they are quite definitive in their decisions. And number 10, because by its very nature has to be much more reactive, it's sometimes unable to give things the required time and honestly the required seniority to be able to give a really definitive answer that does speak for the prime minister and those very senior around it. So I think there are personality ways that you can overcome this. And I think that some of it is bringing more structured number 10. Some of it is about um, the ability, I think, for the PM to be able to have his own voice on matters of spending and, and in the economy in general. But I, I think it does often just reside in that question of relationships. And number 10 sometimes can be quite either too subservient to Treasury. And it's just, I've had conversations with literal prime ministers who are like, I. The, the, the chancellor says no and i'm like you are the prime minister i think we can probably go back for another round um and sometimes a number 10 who's deeply suspicious of, of the treasury at all times and so i think as much as there are structural things that probably you can fix some of and not all of them relationships would help to overcome some of the ways in which the two do not always row in the right direction and i think just a final point soon as we talked about the coalition one of the things that really worked about the Cameron Osborne relationship was just that personally it was very strong and therefore you didn't have a situation of David Cameron automatically caving to Treasury but likewise you didn't have a situation of automatic suspicion. Yeah. And I mean I think we're, what we're absolutely not saying is that it, that sort of creative te- that there can't be really positive creative mm. tension between yeah. the two and a necessary you know the Treasury needs to say no to lots of things because at the end of the day we can't spend money on everything. Do you know what I mean? I, I, it's fascinating. The um, the Treasury always has that view that we're the grown-ups in the room, and uh, and we, we, can, we can help all of you uh, come to a um, sensible conclusion. And look, government does always need to have uh, the fabric of, uh, of, of, of tram lines within which they're working. And actually, in my experience, Treasury doesn't say no. They tend to say perhaps but. And there's always that... How are you going to make this happen? Because, and it's all fundamentally, and we all know it, um, the pain of government is that it's about choice. And, and and there is a choice as to where you are prepared to put your borrowing, where you are prepared to put your tax rates. So yes, you can do this and that and the other, and it'll be terribly exciting and, and people will love it, but they're going to have to pay for it. Uh, and you obviously need to work through that. So it all comes down, as we all know, to that fundamental uh, process of what is a decision, how are you going to set out your programme, uh, what is actually important in that programme and how are you going to uh, h- how are you going to prioritise it. And I do that as a departmental work minister working out uh, the budget, it's what's the prime minister's priorities, how can I fund them, where do I need to take resources. And you know, we've had it this week with, um, uh, uh, with the Chancellor setting out uh, very clear um, uh, views in terms of how we're going to drive productivity in the public sector, but it's all about forcing choice, making certain, making the correct allocations. It's all too easy to spend other people's money, uh, as the Treasury would say, and, and most, and all Prime Ministers accept as well. Seeing you raise it, um, the Chancellor's speech, one of the things he said was about cutting the uh, civil, serv- civil service, um, I think he said back to the 2019 level, so a, a cut of 66 
thousand civil servants. Can you tell us any more about um, the government's thinking about how it's going to approach that? Um, look, I'll tell you the uh, the genesis of the, of, the, uh, of the policy and the principle behind it, and that's to ensure uh, that we are looking at driving up the productivity of the, of, of the public sector. And as I say, it is all down to choices. It's all down to the allocation of uh, resource. And you must continuously uh, be in that mindset of how can we do this more effectively, more efficiently, our resources being properly allocated. And there are statements of fact, and we, we know that the, uh, the number of people inside uh, the um, uh, central civil service has uh, grown over the last five years. It has. We all know it. We've seen, we've seen the numbers. And there are good reasons behind much of that. And uh, the, the, the uh, Chancellor isn't talking about winding back to 2015, which was the, 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 the nadir. But it is absolutely right that by the department by department, we should be saying, how are we focusing our resources? Are we being as productively and productive as we can? And if not, what are the changes that we can make in terms of the allocation of those resources, in terms of how we're actually doing things to ensure they're better? And that there will be more work on productivity. I'm sure we'll be hearing more over the months to come about how we can drive that process forward. I'd, well, I, I respectfully think it's a terrible decision. Um, the reason for that is I think that we shouldn't talk about, you know, it's, it's, it's people. Um, when you do this sort of uh, transformation in business, it's incredibly difficult. And if you're not careful, you lose your best people. I think that what we have is we, we will move to a world where the best talent has the best op options, they will leave. So instead of having a more productive civil service, we will have a less productive civil service. And I think that that um, empowering the civil service, bringing back that trust in them, and then letting them lead towards a better one where they have their talent, I think would be much more effective than sort of like a top level number, um, which I think will just uh, lead to, to, to uh, us losing more really good civil servants. I mean, Alex, uh, when the um, actually larger cuts were proposed previously and back to the, I think it was originally to the um, mm -hmm. 2015 level, you wrote a piece trying to, to um, identify some best practice on how to do how to um, uh, drive efficiencies and productivity in the civil service. Do you want to give us headlines of that? Yeah, um, I'll do my old civil service thing of triangulating between the minister and uh, uh, his <laughs> advisor. Um, uh, uh, no, I think, well, first thing to say, particularly given the uh, context that we're in and um, uh, Conservative Party Conference, is the civil service has grown a lot. And depending on what you want it to do, there is room for it to shrink. Um, the, policy, the policy civil service has doubled in size over the last few years. There are a lot of very senior civil servants who I talk to who themselves say, we're too big, we've got too many civil servants. Um, I think there are other civil servants, some of the data and digital specialists who you wouldn't want to cut, which speaks to Ben's point about, um, about not doing this in an arbitrary way. Um, so uh, you know, there absolutely is a conversation to be had here. Um, Hannah, as you said, what 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 we were saying at the back end of last year when this came round most recently is, um, and I think it was a phrase doing the rounds internally in government as well, was target pounds, not people. Um, because the moment, as Ben says, you stick a headcount number on it, you get all kinds of perverse incentives inside the system. Um, the uh, you know, younger, sometimes more dynamic, cheaper people might be the ones who go, um, you know, first in, first out. Um, the uh, uh, people who've been around for longer who are more expensive might be the ones who end up uh, staying, maybe that's right, maybe it's wrong. Um, uh, you uh, end up not filling jobs that really need to be filled unless you have a really smart exemptions process. Um, uh, 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 and 
um, it, it creates, uh, as I say, the, the, the perverse incentives of not then investing in people, and investing areas which you really need to leverage that wider productivity in the, uh, in, in, in the public sector. So it absolutely is room to slim down. There is, you know, there is something going on here. We are hopefully through the COVID uh, hump uh, and uh, uh, the, the Brexit um, functions have now been incorporated in the civil service. I think that reasonably means a civil service that is doing more than before we left the EU. And so there are additional functions to be done there, but it's probably not the same size civil service that we have at the moment. Um, but in order to get from here to there, um, the thing that frustrates me is this kind of boom and bust, retrenchment and then growth and then retrenchment again, um, which over time hollows out the civil service, because as I say, the, the um, you know, the best people are not incentivised to stay, and some of the less good people um, perhaps are. I think it's probably also worth saying that some of the work that's been in the Cabinet Office, and that's people we really do want to have in government, some of the people who are in the um, in the functions and so on, bringing in commercial skills, bringing in um, data skills and so on, financial uh, project management, program management skills, those are, you know, um, uh, that's good growth uh, in, in the things that we need in the civil service. So, yeah, it's, a, it's that... A, uh, targeted approach and, and thinking through um, uh, how to lose the people who are, are not the ones who are, are needed anymore. Okay, I'm going to open up to questions. Uh, one of my colleagues has a mic. There's a very keen gentleman on the <laughs> on, on the aisle here. We'll take three at a time, and then the, certainly. Let the, uh, my name is Billy James, Ireland South Downs. I will give you my background if necessary and my reason for having some not inside knowledge. My question is this, is the panel actually sk skating around the elephant in the room, which is the ability of the ministers? If you take a Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's run a business, his relations with his civil servants were excellent. If you take ministers who've been career politicians, they can make great pro proclamations, but their chances of any getting anything past their civil servants are minimal because they simply have no experience of management. Thank you very much. Uh, there's there was uh, two gentlemen here. Let's go for them. Yeah, there was. There'll be time for another round, I think. <laughs> um, so, a fascinating conversation. It covered so many different areas and so many different comments I could make, but I am going to stick to a question, right? Um, Would you like it, to tell us who you are as well? Sorry, I'm, I'm Chris Burke. I'm at the Nuclear AMRC, um, one of the product catamaran organisations, and um, used to be a civil servant. So, the question I'm asking myself is if you want to make the central government more efficient, is the solution fundamentally a structural solution or a cultural solution? And people have talked about all sorts of different structures. The British system is incredibly flexible, right? You can set up all sorts of joint units, you can make things bigger, smaller, you can do all sorts of crazy things if you want to. Um, and we have done, we've tried quite a few different uh, setups, right? Um, or is it cultural? And when I say cultural, I'm also talking about the sort of things that Ben was talking about, about the people and the nature of the people. And in my view, I used to look after the government science and engineering profession, you know, can we do something to elevate the status of people who aren't policy generalists within the civil service and give them a greater say and greater input? Because I suspect part of the problem is the fact that we don't have enough of, it's not just that we don't have enough of that type of people, it's that they don't have the right status and the right value within the system. Thank you very much. Do you want to pass it forward to that? Uh, good evening. I'm Dory Schmetterling from Kensington Chelsea Council. I've got one very quick, short question and a slightly longer one. The short question is, given the size of a lot of the government departments, why not just reduce numbers by waiting for natural retirement and wastage departures? That's the short one. The longer one is, uh, slightly longer, is to, is to 
I'll go to a point which Ben raised, but I think it's more general. I'd like to generalize rather than just the Prime Minister's office, but the panel will then perhaps comment on the centre. And that is that he spoke about data scientists, but I think the problem we have in this country, and it's probably not so, so strong in some of the European countries, is that we, let's put it like this, our Sir Humphrey Applebee's and our Jim Hackers just don't have any real scientific understanding. A whole bunch of them are pleased to drop maths when they're about 15 or 14. I'm not sure a government policy of forcing people to do maths till 18 will work because it's a matter of ability and so on. But I think that we just don't have enough people who understand data, numbers, in particular numbers, and science. And I would you like to comment Prime Minister's office or anybody's office? Brilliant, thank you. So we've got four questions now, I think. Um, is this really about the ability of uh, ministers, not uh, just civil servants? Is this about structure or culture? And then links to that, I think, um, you know, the uh, should we make it uh, easier for people with specialist skills to, 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 um, to get on? Um, why shouldn't we just do this through natural wastage, uh, cut numbers through natural wastage, and then um, science and data skills? I know Ben will want to talk about the, the data skills one. I know Alex will want to talk about the wastage one. Um, but uh, why don't you each just take the questions that you would like to answer? Anita, do you want to start? Um, sure. I mean, I think the elephant in the room uh, of ministers is a very interesting question. And I felt for a very long time that Politics is a very specific skill and being able to play the quote unquote political game to elevate yourself such that you become a minister requires a real and deep understanding of politics and the rules of politics. Um, but running a department is an operation. It's running a business. And um, for many departments, certainly the ones that I worked in, DWP, Ministry of Justice, huge civil servants, and many of the issues you're grappling with are not ones of policy decision-making, but of how you operationalize for optimum, very clear outputs that you want. And not all secretaries of state and ministers are able to necessarily straddle both of those horses. And this is where I think the point about scientists and data is much more important. We have, um, partly because of the nature of politics, a resistance to, to pilots, to trials, to evaluations, to rigorous assessment. And all of those things are what you would do in a regular business. And, in the career that I am in now to evaluate and understand whether this was something to implement across an entire area or indeed in our case you know the entire country and these these two things happen in and for good reason I don't think that's saying that ministers aren't any good or or they should know these things but I think that makes it more important for us to have that expertise in the civil service and I think honestly you do find ministers that can really do both and it's not just ones that have business backgrounds and I've certainly the likes of like the Brandon Lewis's and the Aziz Zahawi's are just brilliant operationally and they both have business backgrounds fair enough but but I but I, I but I think that having that balance and understanding what ministers and politicians do exceptionally well, which the civil service absolutely couldn't do, and what civil servants can do exceptionally well, is the key to kind of unlocking, I think, some of that tension. I think that's absolutely right. Playing to strengths, and I think uh, one of the things that we think about quite a lot at the Institute is how we can better support ministers who absolutely have become successful ministers for the reasons that you know Anita says, but that you know could also be uh, investing in their ability to, to to be better managers and leaders, um, which you know any leader of a of a FTSE one hundred 
company would expect to, to have that sort of support and professional development just as, as, as part of the, their normal day to day. So I think, you know, I personally think it's quite weird that we expect people to take on these, you know, massively consequential, really difficult jobs and we don't really offer them that support at all. So anyway, that's a, just a personal bugbear, IFG bugbear. Um, Alex, I don't uh, Yeah, thanks. Agree with that. And I think I need to put, put, put the um, points there really well. Uh, completely agree with those. On, but on the quality of ministers, yes, absolutely. Quality of ministers is really important, but I shall then leave the minister on our panel to, uh, to reflect on that further. Other than to say on you mentioned Jacob Rees-Mogg, and it will be, be clear from what I said a moment ago, I absolutely do not agree with Jacob Rees-Mogg on many things, but um, uh, I was at a fringe event uh, earlier with him where this very question came up about management. And um, what struck me about that was he, he, he described it in the way of execution of power uh, and with as much importance on execution as on power there. And so I slightly worry sometimes when we talk about management, it's the sort of slightly you know, dry kind of um, managing people type thing, which is important. But in the end, a minister is about um, executing a political project uh, and running a government. And I think to Anita's point, that's 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 really, uh, you know, really important. And it's just slightly different from what I think is sometimes in our minds on management. On natural wastage, I think, yes, and I think that probably is the plan. Jeremy might um, be able to confirm it. But the problem with um, uh, letting numbers go down by natural wastage is, you know, firstly, obviously it's, it's slower, but secondly, it, it, it by definition then falls in random places. And I think I would like to see a more actively managed civil service workforce than that implies, where we're really thinking hard about the skills that we need and where they need to be in government and how that reflects priorities. I'll let Ben come in on the data point. Structural or cultural solutions, I mean, it's, it's clearly both and culture trumps structure, but, um, um, but having said that, quite often in you know in a lot of these subjects people talk about the importance of leadership yes that's really important but how are we incentivizing the development of good leaders and then that does come incentives often are related to structure so sometimes i feel it is it, it is ultimately about culture but how are we designing it's a bit of you know we make our buildings and then our buildings make us how are we designing the systems of government to to incentivize the cultures that we want to lead to the highest possible performance in the civil service and amongst ministers and elsewhere. As the elephant in the room. Um, <laughs> the, uh, to Mr. James's point, look, I, the, there is a, uh, it really does help government if you have a good leavening of people uh, within it, in my experience, who've got a lot of commercial um, background, which is why one of the many, many reasons why everyone should always vote Conservative. Um, but uh, we're not just technocrats, and you need more from ministers than that. It's all about parliamentary accountability. It's about being able to represent uh, to uh, the people at large. And we shouldn't require ministers to have had a 30-year business career before they become a minister. The system must be able to support uh, good people coming into politics with a range of brilliant expertise, be that in uh, the caring professions or anywhere else. And they need to be able to be supported through what they do. Um, so the ways we do it, I mean, there is training, uh, and I... I, I set up the training when I was first in the cabinet office and I then went to a spending department and felt obliged to do it. But I found it very helpful. So, uh, the, so the training is there. Uh, we need to have good civil servants who will be able to work with the ministers that the prime minister gives them and uh, use their different skills to maximum effect. And actually, I, I do believe in, our, in, in, in the boards. So you do have, due to the board reforms, we did bring in at the top of these departments people with a lot of commercial expertise. And so if you've got someone who hasn't had that commercial uh, background, 
there should be people, they need the training to know how they ask and how they use it, but they should have people alongside them who will help them hold the, the, the departments to account. So whatever your background, you must be able to be given the support to succeed uh, in, in, in ministerial office. Um, there is a whole load of other things, but on the scientific expertise, could not agree with you more. A lot of people in government would say exactly the same thing. And there are many ways that we're trying to do that. So more than 50% of the fast stream now come from uh, tech and data uh, uh, backgrounds. Uh, the AI fellows in the heart of government are doing exactly that. Did you think of that, that initially, Ben? I can't remember. Was that, was that general? No. I won't take credit for all the things you've made, because no, otherwise no, no. it will just be me singing. <laughs> sit centre and the evaluation but fellowship a, as well. If it you was can a, <laughs> but it was a good initiatives, working well, uh, and, and, and the push on uh, technical uh, secondments. And, and look, this is all positive stuff, and we do need people at the centre. And the DDAP pay framework as well. You know, We do need to reward people and support them uh, for bringing those skills into government. I mean... I 100% agree with you on the importance of, you know, as you said, science, maths, that ability to, to causally reason, to thinking systems, this type of thing, I think is so important. I think on this, it's really important we remember that every enterprise is, is struggling with this. Every enterprise, if you go to anywhere, there is lots of talent problems in most organizations. So for these people, they have a huge amount of optionality and they can choose very a very, very career structure. And so I think that it's really important that when we think about these people coming into the civil service, it might be that actually what we're looking for is people doing tours of duty, sort of doing their 18 months and then going off and doing something else. The other thing I think that really is really important is the lack of uh, role models in leadership. We basically have no DG, or if we DG, I think we shouldn't call generalists generalists. They're Whitehall specialists most of the time now, right? These are brilliant people, but they're Whitehall specialists. Um, there are a few generalists around, let's call them polymaths. There are a few. We've unfortunately lost a couple of them that I used to work with in government. But um, so we do need to make sure that we have this leadership. So where is the where's the DGs who have come up from a science background? You know, Patrick Vance was an unbelievably good role model in that respect, a genuine executive leader who was a brilliant science scientist uh, as well. And I think the more we, we think about that career path, because we talk about role modeling in lots of areas, and I think we should also think about it also so that they can portray the cultures I think that sometimes when we think about our analytical culture, our analytical culture in government is a little bit towards um, enabling uh, the really important parts of democracy. What can we say legally? What can we say um, for a minister can say in front of parliament? It's not what's the right answer. It's not, okay, let's get the scientists, the mathematician stuff and have a row to get to the right answer. Don't have that culture right now in government at times. And I think that's because we don't have the leaders who want that because they can't engage with it. It's a very, very, very good leader who has the sort of um, uh, abilities to let their teams row it out in a way with a language that they don't understand. I don't think that, that's almost possible for anyone. So what we need to do is think about how we're gonna create that those very good uh, grade sixes into DDs, into directors, into DGs. We want perm sex who have come from DDAT. We want perm sex who have come from science. That's when we know we're winning, when we've got a cab sec who can do uh, maths at a high level. <laughs> okay, well, and also has a, has, a, has, a, has a doctorate, but yeah, but I think, but I do think that's the thing is that I think that we, we, we need to make sure that it is integrated fully into the civil service, not simply a tag on that we call in when it's needed. It's science and maths is always needed, so it should always be in the room and it should be represented by the top person at the table, not say, the bottom. I, I have to say, I don't think anyone who's got a first class degree and a PhD in Tudor history is in a position 
you take judgment on whether to build a nuclear power station or not. You don't <laughs> understand the basis of, for example, waste disposal. That's my, I mean, that's just one example. I think that um, lots of people do degrees that they don't use in their real life. And I think that the mistakes we make at 16 sometimes shouldn't be held against us when we're doing uh, <laughs> <laughs> at a late yeah, stage. Yeah. I think that, on you that know. Note, on that note, I'm very conscious that uh, the minister has given us an hour of his valuable time, and I don't want to make him late for his uh, subsequent uh, engagements this evening. And I'm getting fierce looks from his spats. So, <laughs> you know. Um, um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you to our excellent panel. Um, hopefully, some of the panel will be able to stay around for further discussion for those who whose questions I didn't get to. And apologies for my poor chairing on that. But please join me in thanking the panel. <laughs>